The Joe Robbins series features an Austin-based amateur detective with a head for numbers and a knack for finding trouble. You can buy the full set of four novels on Amazon for $10 plus tax. To find the novels, type the Joe Robbins series into the Amazon search bar. Welcome to the Sheila Stories, which relate an Australian woman's life of adventure and romance. I'm Pat Kelly, your host and storyteller. Now, to get us all back up to speed, in the last episode, we heard the story 10%, which took place in 1962. During the story, Sheila returned to Queensland, Australia, and was briefly reunited with Tom, Hannah, and their family. In today's episode, we will hear the story Unfamiliar Field, which begins six years later in 1968. During the course of the story, Sheila and Neil will have a debate with their daughter Sandra about the war in Vietnam. Unfamiliar Field In early 1968, the twins turned 21. They spent the following summer with Sheila in Cape May, and Neil came down on the weekends. Linda was a free spirit and a talented athlete, but not much for book learning. She had worked summers at the surf shop and was now the manager. As a rising senior at Penn State, She had no idea what she'd do for living after college. Sandra was the scholar of the two. On countless summer days, when Linda had gone surfing, Sandra stayed behind to sit on the porch with her nose in a book. She studied literature at Vassar and planned to attend law school. On a Friday morning in late July, Sheila worked her garden in the side yard. Her tomato plants had grown seven feet and were laden with fat red beefsteaks. Sprouting summer squash plants boasted ripe yellow fruit. The short pumpkin vine was for fun. She'd never grown pumpkins before, but now had eight green ones the size of her fist. Peter Nakatunga, David's son, was coming for the weekend. He studied finance at Wharton and had a summer job with a bank. Linda and Sandra had met Peter and his younger brother, Gary, on the twins' first trip to Australia. Since then, the four of them had related to one another like cousins. During the previous summer, Sheila had detected a vibe between Sandra and Peter, and she suspected they'd had a brief romance. But by the end of the summer, the vibe was gone. Sandra had never mentioned the subject, and Sheila didn't pry. She knelt and used her trowel to make a small groove for the mustard seeds. Sprinkling seeds into her hand, she planted each one a half inch from its neighbor. The rich soil welcomed the seeds, and she sealed their union with a sprinkling from the gardening pail. So much had changed in American society in a few years. Music, clothing, feminism, and views toward sexuality. Many of the old prejudices and inhibitions had fallen by the wayside. Life for interracial couples, while far from stress-free, was at least tenable. She approved of most of the changes in behavior and outlook. 
She had even adopted the fashions with her hair and clothing. Neil had two, for he had grown his hair longer, had sideburns, and wore colorful ties to work. She would have thought life grand, fantastic even, if not for the war in Vietnam. Five adults sat around the table in the dining room of the inn. Sheila, Neil, Linda, Sandra, and Peter. They had bought seafood takeout from the lobster house. A big Caesar salad, broiled scallops, and baked flounder stuffed with crab. They all dressed casually, but the definition of casual varied from one generation to the next. Neil wore tan khakis and a white polo. The kids all wore jeans and t-shirts. Sandra's shirt was blue and tucked in. Linda's proudly splashed the colors of the rainbow. Was Linda wearing a bra? She had small breasts and wore the shirt loose, so it was hard to tell. Sheila had taken to checking by putting a hand on Linda's back to feel for a strap. When she detected no bra, she made her view known but tried to keep it light. Oh, Linda, did you forget something? Linda would make it clear where she stood with a flippant remark. Mom, they're my boobs and I'll set them free if I want to. Yeah, well, Linda was 21. She had the right to vote, buy liquor, and wear what she pleased, so Sheila didn't dwell on the subject. After the dishes were washed, Neil opened more wine and they sat around the table again. The conversation soon turned to the war. It's Johnson's fault, said Sandra, and that bastard McNamara and the generals. If they hadn't kept escalating, we wouldn't be in this mess. Don't forget, said Peter, Kennedy started the build-up, But they were just advisors, said Linda. In Johnson's five years, he's done nothing but get more people killed. Neil bit his lip. He keenly observed the conversation, undoubtedly dying to jump in. Sheila shot him a warning glance. As a corporate attorney, he debated for a living. When he argued with the girls, he generally backed them into a corner, which made for hard feelings that took days to repair. Just listen, she had told him on many occasions. You'll learn more, and they'll appreciate you more if you listen. They have passed the age when we can teach them. He agreed with her advice, but couldn't always comply. Do you agree with the rationale for the war, said Peter? That's the key question. The rest is implementation. If you agree with the rationale, then we have to win. No, said Sandra. I don't agree so I keep demonstrating. I think the rationale has merit, said Peter. Explain it to me, snapped Sandra, anger bubbling behind her eyes. And don't wave the red menace flag. That's all bullshit. Peter spoke calmly, trying to make his points without ratcheting up the animosity. Communism threatens democracy. We have to stop it somewhere, or it will consume the entire world. Sandra recoiled from his argument, her lips in a snarl. Do you really believe that crap? It's so far away, said Linda. When I'm sitting in the surf shop or out giving lessons, the red menace seems unreal. Why do we draft boys to fight a war across the world when no one has harmed us? It seems far from America, said Peter. But in Australia, people remember how quickly the Japanese island hopped from Thailand to New Guinea. That's why Gary volunteered. 
Peter's mention of Gary silenced the table. Gary had returned to Queensland after his Harvard freshman year and joined the Army. John's letters kept Sheila updated. As did the family of every soldier who ever marched off to war, Gary's parents worried constantly. When does he finish his tour, said Sandra, in a softer tone. March, said Peter, his eyes focused on the salt shaker. Eight months. Sandra touched his shoulder. Gary has honorably answered his own call of duty. But in my heart, I believe this is a civil war amongst a sovereign people. We have no business intervening. Then you should vote for Nixon, said Neil. Oh, no. He couldn't resist. Nixon, said Sandra. Her eyes slits now. As you conveyed earlier, we're in a mess. Nixon will negotiate an acceptable end to the war. He looks kind of weaselly to me, said Linda. It's not about appearance, said Neil. It's about experience, intelligence, and integrity. Humphrey is better looking. I'll grant you that, but he may not win the nomination, and Nixon is the right man for the job anyway. What do you think, Sheila, said Peter. She had mixed feelings about Vietnam. As a veteran of the AWAS, she believed in supporting her country. She was a U.S. citizen now, and as such, she had a duty to defend its actions. But the divisiveness of the war confused her. I'm not certain, she said. In World War II, everyone supported the cause. Every person did his or her bit. But with this war, we have such internal conflict, I don't know what to think. Come with me to the demonstration on Saturday, said Sandra. Linda and Peter are coming. In addition to the speeches, they always have great music. To be clear, said Peter, I'll go as your friend, not as a demonstrator. Sandra nodded as if they'd already had the conversation. Sheila wanted to support Sandra's efforts, as any mother would, but she had another consideration, her friendship with Flossie Parker. Freddie Parker wasn't drafted, and he didn't volunteer to fight in Vietnam. He didn't have to because he was already in the Army. He had joined up after high school, proud to follow in the footsteps of his father Jimmy, who had served in the Army in Europe. As a sergeant, Freddie was on his second tour in Vietnam. During the past summer, Freddie had spent a week's leave with his family in Cape May. Sheila had picked him up at the bus station. He wore his uniform with pride, ignoring the stares of the hippies who got off the bus with him. He had changed into bathing trunks as soon as he reached the inn and spent much of the week in the ocean, surfing as well as his talents would allow, having a ball. Will you come, Mom? asked Sandra again, to the protest rally. No, you go. Demonstrate for what you believe is right. I'll stay on the sidelines. Two months later, in mid-September, the kids had all gone back to school. Only Sheila, Neil, and a few guests remained. On a Sunday afternoon, she received a phone call from Jimmy Parker and spent the rest of the day crying. She went to bed before sunset. She had met Freddie in Fairmount Park when he was three, watched him grow summer after summer, and taught him to swim and surf and fish. He wasn't perfect, far from it, just an average person trying to live his life. Neil took care of the guests and then came to her. He lay behind her, curled his legs alongside hers, 
and reached across to hold her hand. She cried again, softly, almost spent. He was twenty-five, she said. He hadn't even figured out his life. Freddie Parker died fighting soldiers he never saw in an unfamiliar field 9,000 miles from home. She spent much of the next few days sitting on the porch, letting her garden go untended, thinking. This was a different kind of war, and the longer she considered it, the less she liked it. How could it be right to fight a war against a people that had never done you personal harm? The next day, she read the paper and made plans to attend a demonstration. Twelve years later, when the war was long over and the pain of Freddie's death had lessened, Flossie and her daughter Peggy came to visit on Labor Day weekend. The five of them went to the beach, Sheila and Neil, Flossie and Peggy, and Peggy's baby daughter. Neil dug holes in the sand for the beach umbrellas, and Peggy put her baby on a big towel. The baby was six months old and curious. She lay on her belly with her arms in front and pushed up, her back curled and her head high. Two boys played a paddle game 50 feet away. They swatted a rubber ball between them, and as the paddles popped the ball, the boys counted the number of times they hit before missing. The baby watched the game with great excitement. Her eyes moved back and forth with the ball, and as the count grew higher, she waved her hands and gave a high-pitched cheer. You know, said Sheila, I think she's ready to play. She's a live one, said Peggy. She'll be surfing soon. Sheila turned to watch Neil. His face was buried in a thick spy novel. Retirement suited him. After the first few months, the corporate stress lines faded from his shoulders and neck and face. They had taken up sailing and kept a boat in the marina. At the age of 63, she still surfed in the summer months but she steered clear of the rough waves and the storm tides. And she was no longer a year-rounder. Every year, as soon as the grandkids and the holiday guests left in early January, she and Neil went to Australia for eight weeks. Money certainly had its benefits. The boys stopped playing the paddle game, and the baby fell asleep. She lay on her belly, her head turned to the side, a thumb in her mouth. Peggy sat beside her and rubbed her back. She looked up and said, Can you watch her while Mom and I take a walk? I never pass on a chance to watch a baby, said Sheila. She likes to roll from her back to her tummy and over again. She can't crawl yet, but she can roll across a room in a hurry. Flossie smiled. The signs of grief lingered. Extra pounds, gray in her hair, and long silences but she carried on as best she could. She and Jimmy still worked, and there were the grandchildren to spoil. The two women crossed the beach to where the waves washed onto the sand and covered their ankles. They were the same height and walked the same way, business-like, with a minimum of sway in the hips, their arms relaxed, palms pointed rearward. Seagulls squawked nearby. An old man fed them breadcrumbs. He threw the scraps in the air, and the gulls hovered. More gulls came, and soon a dozen had gathered, all shrieking and diving for their own piece of the fortune. I wish you wouldn't do that, said Neil. Soon we'll have to lock up our lunch, and a line of seagulls will form, 
each one demanding his own sandwich. The baby cooed. The seagulls had woken her, and she reached for them. Ooh, ooh. The baby laid her left arm flat on the towel, pushed with her right hand, and neatly rolled onto her back. Her eyes turned toward the gulls again, beaming with excitement. She pointed at them. By straining, twisting, and using her legs for leverage, she flipped onto her tummy again. As Peggy had said, this was how her baby crawled. In one more roll, she'd get a mouthful of sand. My goodness, said Sheila, aren't you busy? She picked her up, cradled the baby's bottom in the crook of her arm, and straightened her top. The baby touched Sheila's nose and played with her eyelashes. She studied Sheila's face and reached for an ear. Sheila laughed. Something about the baby's expression reminded her of Freddy, the way her nose wrinkled when she smiled. The baby peered into Sheila's eyes, and the skin on Sheila's arms tingled. The baby was trying to communicate something, an impatient desire to get on with life, to experience adventure and sport and love. What a peculiar sensation. For a moment, Sheila felt the exhilaration of youth, the limitless opportunities, every day presenting a challenge to accept. Deep in her core, Sheila knew this girl was special. Chris and I sit on the bench and watch the river. The moon's reflection ripples with the current. A fish splashes downstream. The summer is high and the heat of the day clings to the land. My grandfather was killed in Vietnam, she says. I'm sorry. My mother scarcely knew him. She was eight years old when he died. That's awful, I say. A slight breeze stirs. It will soon cool the air. Chris nudges closer and curls her hand around my upper arm. At least that war was relatively contained, she says. It seems the world has become a hateful place since then. Everyone fights everyone. She leans against me. I've been fortunate. I've never had to fight. Of course, I'm grateful for the men and women who serve, but I also hope the world can find some peace, if not in my lifetime perhaps in the girls. What do you think Sheila would say about the world now? asks Chris. I think back on the stories. So much changed in the course of her life, but one thing remained constant, her attitude, a mixture of optimism and determination. She would tell us to focus on the future, I say. Peggy's baby represents a fresh start, a new chance for the world to get it right. Sheila would never give up on that chance. Okay, that's the end of the story, Unfamiliar Field. Obviously, this sad story reminds us that war is terrible. Freddie Parker wanted to follow in his father's footsteps by joining the army and serving his country. He didn't know when he joined there would be a war in Vietnam, but he bravely followed his orders, traveled far from his home, fought with his comrades, and was killed. Yes, 
War is terrible. 58,220 U.S. military personnel were killed in the Vietnam War. An estimated 1 to 3 million Vietnamese military personnel and civilians were killed during the two decades of fighting from 1955 to 1975. Fortunately, for humankind, wars end and life for the survivors goes on. The story fast-forwards to a beach outing in 1980. Freddie's younger sister Peggy, who you will remember as the little girl who caught a big fish in the story Patience, is now a grown woman. Peggy is married and has a young baby girl. When Sheila is asked to babysit while Flossie and Peggy take a walk, she feels a connection to Peggy's child. Deep in her core, Sheila knows this girl is special. Our next episode will be our second to the last. And during the episode, the narrator Thomas will tell the story titled The Whole World. The story occurs in the year 1992. Sheila is now 75 years old. As Thomas tells the story, he weaves a mystery into its fabric that causes his daughter April to become very curious. Now I'd like to take a moment to promote my writing, if I may. The Joe Robbins series features an Austin-based amateur detective with a head for numbers and a knack for finding trouble. You can buy the full set of four novels on Amazon for $10 plus tax. In our last episode, I described the first novel in the Joe Robbins series, The Entrepreneurs. The second novel in the series is titled The Cartel Banker. Here's a brief description of the book. Pity the poor drug cartels with their billions in U.S. paper currency. Who will bank them? Kenji Tanaka. Born Peruvian Japanese and educated at Harvard, Kenji is fluent in Spanish, Japanese, and English. He has a beautiful lawyer, a giant bodyguard, and a master plan to become the banker for the cartels by laundering their cash and reinvesting it in legitimate real estate ventures. So when a nosy U.S. co-investor discovers Kenji's true purpose, Kenji does the only smart thing he can. He has the snoop murdered. How could Kenji know he just killed Joe Robbins' best friend? Join Joe Robbins as he embarks on a quest for justice that takes him into the back offices of white-collar crime, through the labyrinth of mysteries at the DEA, and into the heart of the merciless cartel world. One reviewer had this to say about the cartel banker. Joe may be a good CFO, but he's an even better detective and carries the mystery like a seasoned professional. To find the cartel banker, go to Amazon and type the Joe Robbins series into the search bar. The book is available for $2.99. Don't forget, you can buy the full series of four novels for $10 plus tax. On today's episode, we had music by Cinemedia and sound effects by Noise Creations and Zapsplat.com. Thank you, friends. I'll be back soon. Bye now.